The raising of Lazarus from the dead in John's gospel is not the only story we have of Jesus raising someone from the dead, but it is the one richest in detail and in symbolism. There are, as you probably noticed when you heard it, many things about the story that are confusing and a few things that are troubling. Just like in last week's story of the healing of the man born blind, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus' misfortune happened in order to glorify God. This is a hard to accept idea about illness and death, not to mention a difficult idea about God's purposes. Even harder to accept may be Jesus's delay in coming to Lazarus, Mary and Martha. There was a tradition among some of the Jewish people of Jesus's day that the soul lingered near the body for three days and only on the fourth day was someone unwakably dead. So it makes sense from a narrative standpoint that John would want to highlight the truly miraculous nature of Lazarus's rising. But from a human standpoint, to see Jesus sacrificing the feelings of his friends in order to make a point seems uncommonly cruel. On the other hand, death, which comes to all of us, and the grief of survivors is often as harsh and arbitrary as the events of this story. If our deaths and our grieving happen according to God's plan, that plan and its calendar are completely hidden from us. And it might be that a kinder, less messy version of this story would be difficult to connect to our own experience. It would be a story about Jesus, but not really a story about us. So just how is this story of the miraculous raising of a dead man a story about us? No doubt many of us, in grieving for the loss of a loved one, have prayed with all our hearts for just such a miracle. But I bet if the answer to any of our prayers had been anything other than a kindly no, we all would have heard about it. Raising the four-day dead was unusual in Jesus's day, but it is unheard of in our own, despite the best efforts of medical science. But this most extraordinary of miracle stories is in the end a story for us. In C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, which offers a rationale for faith in supernatural events in scripture to a scientific age, he divides Jesus's miracles into two categories. There are what Lewis calls miracles of the old creation, like the feeding of the 5,000 and the changing of water into wine and the healing of various infirmities. And there are miracles of the new creation of which the raising of Lazarus is an important example. The miracles of the old creation, Lewis says, involved God doing ordinary things in extraordinary ways. Changing water into wine is what vines and yeast do all the time. The process is no less miraculous when it happens over the course of months than when Jesus accomplishes it in a moment. But we are used to the natural processes of growth, harvest, and fermentation, so they don't catch us by surprise. Similarly, taking a small amount of grain and turning it into enough food for a multitude is the everyday business of farmers. The multiplication of loaves and fishes for that matter is only extraordinary because Jesus does it so quickly. Miracles of the new creation, on the other hand, are another matter altogether. Resurrection, 
bringing life to the dead is not part of the rhythm of creation. It is God doing a new thing. And Lewis argues further, the main miracle of the new creation, the resurrection of Jesus, changes everything. When God interjects resurrection into the rhythm of creation, it changes the entire universe. It is no wonder, he argues, that we have accounts of resurrection before, from before Jesus' own rising. The resurrection of Jesus is like a stone thrown into the pool of history. It, ca it causes ripples in every direction, past and future. Resurrection changes all of us. Not only is nothing after Jesus the same, but because of the resurrection, nothing before Jesus is the same either. I know that's a pretty weird idea. The past is, well, past. It's fixed. You can't change it. History is history. Well, I think that's not really true. The new life that God promises in Jesus, eternity, living water, light coming into the world, has the power to change history, has the power to change your history. Choices you make today can transform your own past. It's true. As I asked a couple of Sundays ago, when you think back on the moments in your life that were pivotal, that made all the difference, how many of them seemed life-changing at the time? It wasn't the meeting of a stranger that was transformative, really. It was the moment when you decided to ask another friend who was at the party for her number or were inspired by his story to take up painting yourself or to do something about an injustice that made all the difference. And in that moment of choosing life, of seeking grace, of living in love, you transformed that chance meeting in your past from an unremarkable event into a pivotal moment. Your past is constantly remade by the choices you make today. And your present will be reshaped by the choices you make tomorrow. Resurrection, new life, eternity becomes part of the fabric of your history when you choose life in the present moment. And so the question before us is how are we going to choose life? <clears throat> and that is always a present question. There is no need to lament over poor choices and missed opportunities in the past, not because we can't do anything about them, but because we can. In choosing life today, in working to heal a broken world, to mend a broken relationship, to feed the hungry, to raise up the downtrodden, or right a wrong, or stand against an injustice, you not only transform the world, you rewrite your own story. Whatever may have been broken in your past, in choosing life, in living the resurrected life into which calls you in Jesus, your own story becomes a tale of resurrection. And the reign of God comes that much nearer to all of us. I'll finish with a personal story. My grandmother Louise, and believe it or not, my other grandmother's name was Thelma, was a difficult person. By the time she was old, she had become sour, crotchety, and selfish and it was wearying to be around her, especially if you were young. She wasn't all bad. She was often generous and could be extremely creative and very funny, 
but she was needy and demanding as well. When she died, there weren't many people besides family to mourn her, but we gathered as a small group at her graveside, and I invited anyone who wished to share a memory. And after a few good stories, my nephew, who was seven years old at the time, said he would always remember how his great-grandmother always wanted everyone to be happy. My siblings and I were a bit astounded. This was the opposite of Grandma Louise, who always wanted people to be giving her attention, no matter how miserable it made them. But as my nephew explained further, it became clear that he had heard my grandmother's crabby cries of, will you stop that child from crying, as wanting everyone to be happy. And with that story, I think my grandmother was redeemed in a way. In the moment, she was transformed from a woman who perpetually needed attention in order to know that she existed into a person who always wanted everyone to be happy. And thanks to my nephew's wisdom, that is how I now remember her. We are our stories. They transform and redeem us. And we come to what will likely be, as we come to what will likely be the most unusual Holy Week most of us have ever experienced, and retell the story of how God's love transformed and redeemed the world, think about how you would like your story to be told, and walk out of the tomb, and choose life. Amen.